You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. This past week, my wife, Danelle, and I, sitting here on the front row, is uh, we just celebrated our 27th year of marriage. Thank you. I was not intending that applause, but I welcome it. Uh, it has been a delight to be married to my wife over 27 years. I'll be the first to say, as a lot of you know who are married, marriage is, uh, is enjoyable and it can be very, very hard. It can be very rewarding, very sanctifying, very refining. Uh, certainly my wife thinks that in being married to me. Um, we have, over the last 27 years, been able to travel by God's grace, often in the context of ministry, anywhere from Italy to Ethiopia, from Alaska uh, to different places around the country as well. It's been a phenomenal time. Uh, this past week, uh, thanks to the generosity of our three sons, we went to a lunch spot in Miami, a place that we would not normally go to ourselves both because it's costly and because of its cost, we wouldn't want to spend that on ourselves. But our son said, we think you should go. And so they gave us this gift that we really enjoyed together. And so we had a phenomenal lunch. It was at a Korean steakhouse. And I've got to admit, I was surprised how much I liked it. Sincerely. And I have to say this uh, because I am historically not a fan of Korean food, fan of Korean people, not necessarily a fan of Korean food, and it's honestly because of how much vinegar is used. I'm not a big kimchi fan until this past week. And then I had several servings of kimchi. I say several servings because they give you all-you-can-eat side dishes. I ate the kimchi and said, can I have some more kimchi, please? Uh, one of my uh, former pastors I served with in Indianapolis, his wife is Korean, and I sent them a picture of my wife and I eating this Korean food, and they were in disbelief especially when I told him I was eating it a second time, going back for more. It was phenomenal. And I think it was phenomenal because of not only was it a steak restaurant, and if you don't like steak, then I think you might be a communist. Um, but not only did it have phenomenal for uh, a range of uh, steak cuts, but it also had just a variety of different side dishes that I greatly enjoyed. Uh, and my wife did as well. It was not only that, they, they cooked it at your table. And not like in the Japanese kind of style of the, you know, Benihana deal, but it was like a table for two, and we're just loving it, taking pictures like a bunch of junior high girls at lunch. But the question would ask, if you went to that restaurant, would you like it yourself? Some of you honestly would not. I'm not offended by that. It's like it's my mom's recipes. Others of you would love it. And we know what this is like. You go to restaurants and you kind of, even before you go, you can kind of look up on Yelp reviews. What do other people think? How many stars does it get? And what's the criteria by which you determine you like a restaurant? What you like might not be what I like. What I like might not be what you like. You might like the ambience. I could maybe care less. You might not like the food. I might love it. One of my favorite go-tos is down the street on Biscayne is Jimmy's Eastside Diner. Some of you probably make fun of me for eating there. I'm like, yo, I keep it real. Those are my people. I'm meeting there tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. You're not invited. I already have a meeting there. 
It just depends, right? You just like different things. But the question as I began to think about restaurants, even this past week, is it made me think about churches. How do you evaluate churches? How do I evaluate churches? Is it just simply a matter of preference? I mean, do we just sort of judge it based on, well, personalities of leaders and preachers, the, the seating capacity, the, the bathrooms? We're aware we need to remodel our outdated bathrooms. Thank you. We know that. Is it simply about, you know, what kind of programs that the church offers? I mean, how do you and I determine what makes a good church that you or I would want to go to? By no means do we think at Grace Church that Grace Church is the only church to go to in Miami. However, we would say in humility, and I mean that sincerely, not every church in the city of Miami that calls itself a church is either a church or I would be commending you to go to that church. Lots of faithful churches, and may God bless them, and may they be very fruitful and multiply. Others I would hope maybe to close down because of just a diluted or maybe distorted or maybe a false gospel being preached there. So how do you measure a good church? What's the criteria by which you use? How would you and I make such an assessment? I mean, after all, you can turn in Yelp reviews on churches like you can restaurants. Well, we're not left to our own subjective opinion based on personal experience or desire. We're given biblical criteria, and we see that this morning in Galatians chapter 5. So if you would please turn there with me. Galatians chapter 5 is our text. And what we're going to see this morning in the text is that God is concerned that a church look like a church, a gathering of redeemed sinners that are committed to knowing Christ and making Christ known. And surprisingly, churches in Miami should look like the same thing that you would see a faithful church looking like in Zambia, Thailand, Argentina, Cuba, and other parts of our own country. Galatians chapter 5, if you have not been with us in the previous weeks, let me just give you a sense of bearings where we have been through the book of Galatians. Paul has taught the Galatians the following four lessons in the recent verses, if you will. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20, Paul has taught the Galatians to imitate him and to free themselves from the law. Secondly, to stand and their freedom in Christ. You can see this in chapter 4, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 1. Third, to resist the temptation of the false teachers, chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And in the two previous lessons we've had together, number four, live in love by the Holy Spirit, resisting the desires of the flesh. That's sort of the landscape. That's the context of where we have been in the previous sections of Galatians. Not all of the lesson, but, or all the epistle, the letter, but rather some of it, these recent weeks. But now we come to the section of Paul's teaching this morning. And really the main point this morning is the following. We have individual responsibility and community accountability. If I could summarize for you this morning's lesson, that's my summary for you. We have individual responsibility and community accountability, and this often audits our otherwise westernized view of Christianity. Galatians chapter 5, why don't you follow along with me as I read verse 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. 
Paul, continuing his writing, says this, If we by the Spirit, excuse me, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does that look like? Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." For each will have to bear his own load. We'll stop there, and let me just address what maybe is a question in the room, which is, Eric, why chapter 5, verse 25, through chapter 6, verse 5? It seems like you're sort of breaking up two chapters here. Well, let's just be clear, for those who maybe do not know this. When the Bible was written by Isaiah, by Paul, by Mark, they didn't write with chapters and verses. It was a long writing. This is what they wrote, like a long letter you write to your friends. You're not like, you know, putting chapters and verses in your letters to your friends, your emails. Now, that was later added in church history. It's not inspired. It's not inerrant. It is often helpful to kind of see sections of thought. But you'll notice here in the text why I've put this together, because Paul kind of loops back around with this idea of the Spirit you go back to verse 15, look at what he says in chapter 5. I say, walk by the Spirit. He explains what that looks like, as we've seen before. Verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, he then explains more of that. And then he kind of loops back around to the same idea. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So he kind of returns to this theme, but now he moves from the individual to the communal. From what you are doing, what you are thinking, your sexual desires or your kindness your sloth and laziness, or your gentleness and humility. And he then moves into the communal nature of our Christianity, hence why he says what he says in verse 25. Now, this kind of takes us to what I have kind of outlined for us this morning, and that is this. What does Spirit-filled, Spirit-directed, again, verse 25, living look like as a Christian? Three things we can see in the text. Number one, pretty profound, don't be a proud jerk. Don't be a proud jerk. You're like, well, can, can, you, can you say that? Well, I mean, let's go look back at the text. You can see why I say that. Uh, verse 25 says, let us not, notice that plurality there, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. By definition, a jerk is somebody who is annoyingly foolish. They are unlikable because they're rude and small-minded and they think about themselves first. But that's what Paul's addressing here in the text in verse 25. Let us not become conceited. John Stott helpfully writes, this is a very instructive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Friends, remember that. Our conduct towards others is often indicative of our opinion of ourselves. The reality is our interaction with community can just show how self-centered we can actually be. Too often, you and I are tempted to think about, well, no one said hi to me 
No one served me. No one prayed for me. No one cared for me. You're like, man, that's just rough to always be thinking about yourself like this. You ever just thought about others? You sort of like forgot about yourself and think about others. The freedom in that. This idea of being conceited is this idea of becoming proud. It refers to this attitude of being puffed up with pride and arrogance and boastful. The context here is that it presupposes that the Galatians, the Christians in these churches, had become preoccupied with seeking popularity and the high esteem of others. Uh, Paul is saying, as he says earlier, this, this belongs to the flesh, not the Spirit. This is not what it's like to walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. The temptation is to have this lust for the limelight, for the attention of others, and yet this leads to disastrous results. It did for the Galatian churches, it does for churches today. How often we can be tempted to think about ourselves. I mean, think in the Galatian context. Perhaps one group within the Galatian churches who sort of prided themselves as sort of walking according to the law of Moses would have thought about themselves better than others because they were keeping the law. Having a means by which they could therefore judge others. Others, perhaps, within the Galatian churches who sort of knew better. They knew that was false ways of thinking and false ways of believing, and so therefore, they actually prided themselves in the liberty they had, that they did not have to subject themselves to circumcision or other Abrahamic Old Testament laws that they instead were free in Christ, and their liberty somehow said, hey, I am mature because I can. And you just don't understand that. Pride is not unique to the Galatian churches, and nor to those theological frameworks. It's common even for us today in our churches. Notice what he says here in verse 25, this, let us not become conceited. And then look at what he says here, sort of in the negative, provoking one another. So let us not provoke one another. Let us not envy one another. This phrase, one another, is very common in the New Testament. In fact, over a hundred times it's used in the New Testament, this idea of one another. 59 distinctly different times. In fact, if you come to Grace Church's Foundations class, as many of you have, others I look forward to seeing perhaps, the Lord has that for you, you'll know in the first of the two lessons of our time together in Foundations class, we teach and talk through, why would you want to join a church? Why would you want to be conscientiously committed to a local assembly of Christians? And one of the reasons is because it gives an expression, it gives an idea, it gives an outlet and an opportunity to actually obey what the Bible says. Who are these one another's? Not like, I pick you, not you, not you, not you, not you. Yes, I like you. No, no. Yes. Like, oh, how convenient. You pick a bunch of people that like you or look like you. Versus the church is a bunch of people like, well, I think God picked the team and I'm on it and I got to play a part of it and here we go. Spirit, help me. This idea of loving one another with brotherly affection, Romans 12.10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12.16. Bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another, James 5.16. But in this context of Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, he tells you what not to do with one another. Kind of that consistent Pauline theme, what you're putting off and putting on, what you're not doing and what you are doing as a spirit-filled clarity. Do not provoke one another. Do not envy one another. This idea is by your words or by your actions, sort of 
kind of, you know, noodling one another. It's, it's like siblings, right? You ever had siblings before? Some of your only children. I was for the first 16 years of my life, and then God gave me a sister, and I love her to this day. I mean, just, I got a great relationship with my sister. But I did not grow up really in a household with a sister, you know, in kind of a close age and proximity. Some of you have siblings in the same age range, and so you kind of grew up around them in your home. And you know what sometimes siblings are like, right? They just get on each other's nerves. They just poke and probe, and they complain, and they whine, and they tattletale, and they narc to their parents about each other. And you're like, oh, they're just siblings. That's how they are. Well, I'm not sure we should take that approach with our kids. We certainly should not take that approach with each other as Christians in the body of Christ. We should not be conceited, thinking of ourselves and then provoking others, envying others. Yet how commonly envy is. I mean, just take something as, as basic as this. Walk into the parking lot after church. Walk to your car versus another person's car. Do you envy another person's car? You realize you could be 30 seconds out of the building and envy just comes flooding. I just wish I was driving that car instead of this car. I mean, just the temptation is all around us, provoking each other. Is a sense in which I kind of want to get back at you and think about you and not actually want to serve you and love you. Spirituality is not some private pursuit of a religious self-improvement where someone would like to, you know, how we are today with our self-improvement exercises. You should reduce your caffeine consumption. You should increase your water consumption. This is true for most of us. Spirituality and Christianity is not like that. As if you're simply trying to tell yourself, you should reduce your social media and increase your Bible memorization, though these are probably sincerely good for you to do. Instead, it's where you're living in public community as a confessing Christian based on orthodox theology with corresponding orthodox living with corresponding orthodox community. And by orthodox, I mean biblically faithful, sound, and true. where you are indeed known. You see, too often today, Christians will sort of read the Bible selectively and very personally and mean to apply it very privately, largely living their Christianity by expression in isolation, as if to say somehow the the life of the Christian as like this sort of fruitful tree, you know, you being more gentle, you sort of being more kind of being less lazy and more thoughtful and less lustful and more gentle, as if it's some sort of private exercise. In the words of Phil Riken, your spirituality is less like a fruit tree hidden away somewhere in a private garden, but more like a fruit tree that grows in a public park for all to see and observe and enjoy. The second step in being a spirit-filled, spirit-directed Christian is to, number two, take responsibility for each other. Look at Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, there we are at the sibling term. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Oh, friends, 
So much to say here and see in this text and to kind of break it down, I hope, in bite-sized pieces. Now, let me just within these two verses give you four lessons in taking responsibility for each other. They're just right there in front of you. You'll see them for yourself and just we sort of sequence to these. Number one, your concern. If anyone is caught. He goes from this sort of comprehensive family term, brothers, and he says, if anyone is caught. This idea of caught is kind of the same imagery in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily entangles us. You know what that's like when you kind of get wrapped up in something and you're like, man, I can't, I can't get my leg out of that. Can't get my arm out of that. We see that and we should do something about that. There is a genuine concern we have. Friends, let me just be very clear it is not loving to leave someone in their sin that you see is struggling with sin. Unless you try to cover that lack of action in pursuit of them as being not judgmental, if anything, that is judging in the sense that they're not worth the obedience of what God's Word is calling you to and to care for them and love them. There is a genuine concern, Paul says, we should have. Secondly, how comprehensive it is. In any transgression. If anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, this is interesting to help us in Scripture because this is not sort of saying any time you see anyone doing anything wrong, you're like, oh, a parking ticket for your Christianity here. Maybe you're like me and you're kind of wondering when you go parking in Miami, you're wondering like, man, will I get a ticket or not? You're like, well, Eric, you wouldn't get a ticket if you just pay all the time. I'm like, oh, yeah, for the most part, I respect that. But you know, there's, there's that sense of like the, the, the ticket people make you quite aware that they keep you accountable. And this isn't like, you know what, you're just sort of like looking for any opportunity to write Christian tickets. Oh, send there, send there, send there. The expressions actually being used here is this idea of caught in any transgression, meaning it is a perpetual, ongoing opportunity. Because Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, listen, love covers a multitude of sins. No doubt you and I are going to have uh, impatient days. No doubt you and I are going to maybe have a slip of the tongue and say something unkind. And depending on how significant the moment is and or how pervasive it is, sort of helps give us some wisdom as to whether or not we should just pray for, pray for that person or really maybe pursue that person. This idea of caught means they're, they're stuck in it, but look at in any transgression. It doesn't mean you get to pick and choose. Too often people will misrepresent the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus has us teaching about not judging others. You're like, hey, Jesus said don't judge others. You shouldn't judge others. You're like, okay, but read the whole text in its context. Jesus does say in Matthew 7, you should take a look at the, take the log out of your own eye before you take a look at the speck in your brother's eye. But then he says, after dealing with that, then you can go to them. He doesn't intend it to sort of neutralize Christian care and community and accountability. He intends it to clarify in humility you too in solidarity can identify with them. Maybe not in that moment, maybe not in that way, but overall in the temptation and struggle you have with sin. So there is a comprehensiveness to this responsibility in any transgression. Third, you can see there, is care. I, I love kind of the, the reality of how Scripture speaks here. 
caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, this idea of being spiritual is not saying only for like elders. Like oftentimes people will come to us like this. They'll say, hey, Ronald, just so you know, I saw Travis Joyce in sin. You're an elder. You should probably deal with that. Just wanted you to know, you're welcome. Here to help. Oh, oh, thank you. By the way, I just picked on Travis's name. There's no scandal needed associated with Travis's name here. But the challenge is to recognize in Ephesians chapter 4, pastors are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. In other words, the idea of here being spiritual is that you, you understand a spiritual responsibility. You're walking in integrity so that you can, with integrity, speak to another. But to do so, here's the key as far as the word care, in a spirit of gentleness. It's what Paul says to a different church in Ephesians chapter 4, to speak the truth what? In love. Speak the truth what? You're like, I'm not used to this, Eric. Speak the truth in? Just try to lower it down to just one word. You can do one word. Speak the truth in love. Here in his description, Galatians chapter 6, he's saying to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. See, the, the goal is not to be right. The Bible's on my side, not on yours. I've declared judge, jury. I know the reality here. Instead, in a spirit of gentleness, you care for them. And you want to see them restored back to the profession with consistency of how they interact accordingly. So in a spirit of gentleness. And then fourth, look at what he says there, caution. It's not just concern if anyone is caught. It's not just comprehensive in any transgression. Not just care in a spirit of gentleness. It's also caution. Look at what he says. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. This should not neutralize the pursuit of each other, taking responsibility for each other. It should actually slow it down and soften it in a spirit of humility and solidarity that today it might be them and tomorrow it might be you. I think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. What? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I oftentimes am in myself with conversations with people and expressing a concern for them. And, and not all the time, but sometimes I'll say to them, listen, the conversation I'm having with you is the exact same conversation I hope you'll have with me one day in my walk with the Lord. That, that you will see something in me and that you will love me, pray for me gently and patiently pursue me and say, Eric, I have this concern. Elders and pastors are not above this sort of pursuit and care for them. They should be cared for. They should be pursued. should recognize that. So the caution is to not let this pursuit of others invite you to some type of proud exercise. You could say here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the summary is, I see you, I care about you, I will pursue you, I will be gentle with you, and I am self-aware myself of the temptation. For those of you who are members at Grace Church, you know this because we recite it every single time we gather together, every two months for our members uh, meeting, and that is our membership covenant. For those of you who don't know this, let me just have them put up on the screen what's the second bullet point in our membership covenant because I want you to see it here. This is what we commit to. We'll be devoted to one another in love. We'll patiently bear with each other with humility and gentleness, forgiving 
encouraging and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other and admonishing one another when necessary. This is the reminder that we are a part of something by which we commit to the New Testament, not in our likeness or our preferences, but in the keeping with what the Bible describes, devoted to one another, in love, patient with each other, with our own humility and gentleness, forgiving, encouraging, building one up, and then exercising watchfulness over each other, and one necessary admonishing one another. That is true friendship. And I'm afraid some of you have Christian friends that have never been friends like that to you. The question is not, will they become your friend? The question is, are you their friend? And if you're part of a faithful local church, Grace Church or otherwise, that should be what you're committed to in the summary of what the New Testament teaches. Let me give you a practical application of this and how calmly this is by temptation for us. One of the greatest sins that a Christian can commit will seem like the smallest of sins, if even a sin at all. That is, they stop going to church. Maybe they would say because they've had bad experiences. Maybe they'd say because they don't need it. They've got YouTube and podcasts. Maybe because they've got, you know, sort of a busy life. Maybe because it's sort of, you know, ongoing health challenges. But I want you to hear what Hebrews 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, 23 through 25 says. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The reality is this. The reality is that the sin of not going to church, which is biblically defined, I just read you the verse, in time becomes the sin to hide all other sins, especially if that church practices community and accountability. Because you don't want to be known. Mark my words, find me a professing Christian who stops going to church, and I will show you a Christian who sooner or later will be living in various sins, from small to great, outside the care of community. And you know how I know this? Because it used to be me in college. The single greatest perilous decision I've ever made in my life since becoming a Christian as a teenager was in my college years, stop going to church. And just cascading now with one problem after the other. This is the challenge, for example, even in big churches. And I'm not going to lie, as a pastor of this church, which God keeps blessing, is my concern as church keeps growing bigger. Because even when church grows bigger, especially large churches, it's so easy to maybe be in attendance but not to be known. The privacy and autonomy without true community and meaningful accountability Listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. He says, take care, brothers. Again, that term brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Always is by temptation. Leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Every day. You've got to have Christian friends. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Uh, Some of you, I hope many of you, though I don't know how many of you, were a part of this past summer's reading challenge. Every summer we do a reading challenge at Grace Church. And this past summer, we combined it with our summer series, Men's and Women's Bible Study. For those of you who have not heard those, I highly encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, our webpage, wherever you find our, our online resources to hear those lessons. It was essentially lessons pairing with the chapters from our reading in different sort of four sections. Uh, the third section of this book, Habits of Grace, which is the book we read, was on the topic of community, discipling new Christians, not only to hear from God, His Word, not only to talk to God, prayer, but also to be with God's people, community. And chapter 18 in this book is titled, the re, is titled um, by its entitlement, the embrace, embrace the Blessing of Rebuke. It's so good as a chapter, we discuss as elders that we want to have anybody who wants to be a member of the church after they fill out their membership application and say, hey, I want to be a part of it. You guys are like, okay, cool. Hey, do me a favor. We email us to you. Read just this one chapter. We want you to know kind of an interest and in full disclosure what you're getting yourself into. Everybody loves encouragement. I do. I trust you do. And not everybody welcomes correction and admonishment. You're like, well, where are you going? Back off, judgment boy. Respect, my autonomy and individuality, to which we're trying to politely say, um, that's actually not what Scripture teaches. Now, we want to do so gently, we want to do so humbly, we want to do so caringly, but we want to do so very, very biblically for the honor of Christ. Because more than your feelings or my feelings, I'm concerned about is the reputation of Christ and community and whoever identifies with Him. What does that look like? This is us trying to address the myth of self-sufficiency. Now, you go back to the text. You see what he says in verse 2, fulfill the law of Christ. Does it seem odd to you that Paul has spent so many chapters saying no to the law, no to the law, no to the law, and it's like yes to the law? You're like, I'm so confused right now. What's going on here? This phrase he uses, the law of Christ, is to be differed in juxtaposition from the law of Moses, from the law of Christ. Some theologians over history have sort of divided this out like the moral law versus the ceremonial and sort of civil law of how the people were to live back then. Best way I could sort of summarize what he's talking about here with the the law of Christ is sort of the whole example of Jesus' ethical teaching confirmed by his character and conduct and reproduced within his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's be clear to those of you who are not Christians. God does not love you because of what you do. You'll never do enough to earn that love or keep that love. God extends love to you and forgiveness to you and offers grace and mercy to you, as we've sung earlier, because of your faith alone, in Jesus Christ, His Son alone, because of His grace alone for the forgiveness of your sins. So I want to be very, very clear here for those of you who are perhaps knowing yourself to not be in Christ. The goal here this morning is not to become a better human, more publicly, socially engaged, more caring and concerning about one another. I mean, that's, that's sure, that's a win. We all like that if you would do some more of that. But that's getting the carpet for the horse if you don't understand the gospel. 
What Paul's talking about here is to people who understand the gospel. They understand their desires to live for Christ because they put their faith in Christ and they want to honor Christ. They want to live based on what they love and they love their Savior because he first loved them and gave himself up for them. So Paul's like, hey, let me summarize it for you. Like he did early in chapter five, he's saying here in chapter six, you want to fulfill the law of Christ? Do this. Which takes us to our third and final step in being a spirit-filled, spirit-directed Christian. Number three, stay humble because you are accountable. Stay humble because you are accountable. Look back to verse three. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We're back to this idea of conceited in verse 26. Verse four. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Okay, now, at first reading, and I recognize a lot of you have never read Galatians. Some of you have not read Galatians in a long time. So when you come into this, and I read it to you for the first time this morning, you're like, wait a minute, I'm really confused because it seemed like he just said, don't be conceited, verse 26. Now he's talking about boasting. That seems conceited. Is Paul confused? What's he talking about here? Well, he's not in any way talking about being conceited. He would be contradicting himself from their previous verses. In fact, that's sort of the point of what he's talking about here. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What he's talking about is that Paul's attention is addressing this issue of pride on the behalf of the restoring person. Meaning, pride is wrong, verse 3, and each person who's helping restore another should check himself out, make sure they're staying humble, not being tempted, verse 4, not finding any personal status or comparison with others, the end of verse 4, and each is responsible to God for themselves. Here's the reality. The reoccurring low-grade to maybe high-grade temptation is the more engaged you are in helping other Christians grow, the more tempting it can be to think you are better than you actually are, you see more objectively than you do, and you have little room for growth already yourself. He says you need to be careful here. And so what he's talking about is this, this tension he's wanting to kind of unpack for them. This difference between introspection and self-examination. Introspection can easily devolve in verse 4 into a kind of narcissistic, spiritual, navel-gazing. But true self-examination is not merely taking another spiritual pulse on a regular basis, but submitting your own thoughts, your own attitudes, your own actions and desires to the will of God and the mind of Christ, which is what you do when you wash it in the water of the Word. You love the Word of God, you love the people of God, and you want to glorify God with your life. And that's what he's talking about here. So what he's saying here in this context is that the issue to be recognizing is that Christians need to help one another in the struggles of life, but each Christian will also have to answer to God individually. This idea of like there's own burden, right? Because that's what he talks about, bearing his own load. Like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to help somebody else with their load. Well, think of it like this. In verse 5, he talks about this future idea of giving an account. He's talking about, to use a big term, eschatological reality, the future times reality of all Christians having to give an account for their life. 
which we will have to do even in Christ, not unto judgment or damnation, but unto accountability and how he blesses and rewards accordingly. But what we see here in verse 5 is, the best way I can describe it is like, picture going, if you will, on a, on a backpacking trip. Now, right now, if you're people like my wife, like, that's a horrible picture. I do not want a picture going on a backpacking trip. I want a picture of being in an air-conditioned hotel. Okay, setting that aside. Being in a backpacking trip, the idea is everybody has to carry their pack. You can't have somebody else carry your pack. You've got to carry your pack. Now, you can distribute the load between each other's packs. Another able to carry more in their pack than another can carry in theirs, but everybody is carrying their own pack. Though the weight might be different, the load might be different, and different even different times. Everybody's got to carry their own pack. And that's the idea of what Paul is telling the Galatians here in community. Each will have to bear his own load. Significance is to be reminded as Christians what it looks like for us to be together in community, both responsibly for ourselves and for each other. Let me summarize all of this. Let me, let me kind of take all the pieces of the Lego puzzle and bring it together into hopefully one big picture for you to see it again. As we do it at the beginning, let's do it at the end. We should not compete nor be complacent with one another, but care for one another, especially when we are living in sin. Is that your vision of the Christian life? It's God's vision. I talked earlier about restaurants and ratings, often determined by a number of things, including what's on the menu. We want to pray that this is what's on the menu of Grace Church, and that God would keep making this on the menu of other faithful churches in the city of Miami and around the world to be a humble witness of a spirit-filled community, but by no means is perfect, but in humility is prayerfully pursuing the glory of God in their assembly. Not just on Sundays, but certainly on Sundays, but also in their times together throughout the days in between. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.